right, no worries. We'll jump right in. Welcome to the Cannabis Connection. I'm Christopher Carr. Thank you for tuning in to Cannabis Talk Radio. This is Santa Cruz Cannabis Talk Radio. I'm your host. Tonight, our guest is Joe Sweetleaf. Sweetleaf Joe is the founder and the director of the Sweetleaf Collective. Sweetleaf helps low-income veterans, terminally ill patients, and people of color access free medical cannabis. Sweetleaf is California's oldest cannabis brand and is celebrating their 25th anniversary this year. So this is Sweetleaf Joe, and we also are honored to have CT of... CT and I spoke earlier this evening, this morning, Debull Labs. This will be an interesting conversation regarding the, the compliance piece and the transition from the medical era into this new post-Prop 64 era of California cannabis and some exciting new developments in, in understanding what it is to test cannabis and the overlaps and parallels of, of the medical culture into this new era. Welcome to the Cannabis Connection. I'm going to bring you guys on one at a time. Welcome to the Cannabis Connection. Joe. What's up, Joe? Hi there. Hey, how you doing, man? Hi, how are you guys doing? We're doing great. Welcome I am to the well. show. Welcome to the show. I'm going to bring on CT. Thank you, CT. Welcome to the show. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Oops. Thank you for joining us. I accidentally lost Joe. Um, that's okay. Let me lock in CT. You're locked in and here comes Joe. Okay. Awesome. Well, hey, CT, can you tell the people a little bit about your, your, your works and, um, just give us a little bit of a bio because I, I want you to, to speak on your own words and, and tell the people the ongoing works at the lab. Sure. Um, well, I'm, I'm kind of the brat son of the company. I took over. Uh, as president in 2005, and then again as CEO in 2020. Um, my father actually started the company back in the 60s, and we are predominantly in the food industry doing food testing and consulting. Um, unfortunately, my father passed away but um, about a year ago. Um, but the very last thing that we did together was we started um, going down the uh, cannabis route in opening up cannabis laboratories. And so, you know, when he started the company in the 60s, it was one of the America's very first, our uh, group of first uh, food testing labs. And it's just a real honor to kind of continue in uh, his footsteps and continue doing what, what he started um, in in this country. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing that. And welcome back, Joe, to the Cannabis Connection. I got you now, Joe. Hey. hey, sorry about that. So sorry. I, I, went, I went to CT and dropped the call on accident, but you're both locked in. Welcome to the show. How? Okay, so just to start, CT, you're you're in Florida. Yes, I am. So thank you so much for carving out the time. I know it's quite late where you are, and you have a young young human in your midst. Um, but I, I, I greatly appreciate you joining us. And every time we share space on the airwaves, this is, uh, this is a very special thing. It's a service. It's, it's, it's giving love and, and, and reverence to the sacred flower, which we all are, are drawn to and, and to this community. And Joe, can you tell the people where you are joining us tonight? So I'm up here in the Emerald Triangle in Trinity County in the town of Mad River. It's a tiny little town, which I know this sounds like a joke, but the population is 420. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, and that's it. I mean, back to the back to the roots, right? Yeah. Trinity County, Emerald Triangle, it's, you know, I'm up here in the mountains, up around 3,000 feet elevation, and it's just a lovely, lovely little place. Well, one thing that I'd like to explore is the, the Wild West piece of, 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 of this time. We're still uh, in, in many ways in the infancy of the regulated California-compliant market days, 
there. Last time, Joe, you were on our show, we were with Ann Kelson discussing the potential of SB 34. And here we are in 2022, years later. And can you speak to a bit of an update and, 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 and a little bit of how, how you were able to continue that advocacy and, and tell the people what's been going on since your last visit on the Cannabis Connection in regards to the, the furthering of the policy reform of SB 34? Yeah, well, um, I'm trying to remember if I was on the show in 2018 or 2019 because we did the legislative reform uh, over two years. So one year it was SBA 29. We got it all the way to the governor's desk, and the governor vetoed it. It was Jerry Brown at the time. In 2019, we had to do the whole process over again. Uh, but this time when it got to the governor's desk, it was a new governor, Governor Newsom, and he signed it into law. So when it got signed into law in October of 2019, they needed, I think it was like five or six months kind of buffer time before they could implement it. And so it went into effect the beginning of March 2020. So we're almost into two years of having it now. And one of the major things that it did, um, of course, it uh, it removed taxes to to free medical cannabis to patients during 2019 after the sunset of Proposition 215, we actually had to do a fundraiser to pay the state taxes so that our patients could receive free medical cannabis. And this is kind of, you know, super out of the ordinary. I've never really heard of philanthropy being taxed before. I think it was a pretty unique situation. And that's why it's so important that we got it addressed. And so, you know, we passed that law, which is another milestone because it's the first time a government has acknowledged the nonprofit sector of the cannabis industry. And a lot of people don't realize that we have a nonprofit sector. And a lot of people don't realize how vibrant and thriving it is and how it's literally saving people's lives. And with legalization, what we saw in the states that had previously legalized, Oregon, Washington, and Colorado, is they did not have protections for cannabis nonprofits. So their cannabis nonprofit sector disappeared when they legalized. Now, this was becoming a nationwide trend. And what happened is we stopped that trend thanks to the the support that we have in California, thanks to all the activists that worked on this law, thanks to the patients that were going to Sacramento to testify about how important medical, free medical cannabis was to people who can't afford it. And because of what we did, now with federal legalization, we are seeing state, you know, U.S. senators and Congress people actually talking about doing nonprofit protections for cannabis nonprofits on the federal level. So that's really major what we did. Um, it, it's had ripple effects. And over the past two years, you know, we've seen new compassion programs open up. You know, we've seen new demographics being served. It's really kind of a renaissance, I feel like, for compassion. And we're finally being able to pull the whole nonprofit sector together and Sweet Leaf has been, you know, really working on that, you know, trying to create tools for other nonprofits, give free consulting to these new cannabis nonprofits that are starting. And it's just a really, it's a really great time. We're, we're really happy with where we're at now as compared to the last time, you know, we had an interview with you. <laughs> yes, no, it's it's a bit of a it well every I was talking to CT earlier today and a, a year in cannabis is almost like 5 years in another space and it, it, we it's been it's been years since we've spoken and it feels like a lifetime and I'm happy to hear of these these amazing special developments and and to see a positive example maybe take root and flourish across the nation in many ways, California cannabis legalization was a cautionary tale of what not to do, but 
in some ways the compassion piece in this nonprofit sector that's very much uh, a big part of my my heart my love and and that's uh, as a community studies major at UCSC that's very much our focus was was to find a way to support in many ways this broadcast is an exemplary example of a nonprofit sector endeavor in the cannabis space as a public service to educate and to steward the narrative and CT can you speak to the the shift in your in your business and and and, and this this wild west of of testing and, and compliance I would love to hear from you and your insight coming from the food space and what drew you into the cannabis space oh thanks yeah thanks for that yeah, we, so growing up, my parents were both educators before they really got into the, the lab side of it. And, you know, if we had a party or if we had an event, my dad would always be in the corner telling jokes and hanging out with the, the college kids and the, the high school kids. And he loved turning people on to science. And both my parents just really enjoyed helping people. And I think as, an evolution as we kind of they started their business subsequently and we, we kind of grew. Um, one thing and the fortunate thing that happened is my sister ended up coming down with lupus, a very, very heinous disease, um, no cure. And, you know, later in life, um, they were my parents were both very conservative, but very socially liberal. And they were very much for medical cannabis even before it was a thing, um, right? And so I know that um, my sister was able to get medicinal cannabis, probably from a friend or, you know, whatever, and it let her sleep at night. And that was just such, you know, with all the, the drugs and with all the steroids and with everything that they were pumping through her, just to be able to, to smoke and be able to have a nice evening at home or a nice restful night was everything for her. And it really, it really affected our family. And so years later when, um, you know, the cannabis industry started, my parents really felt drawn to it and they were telling us we need to get into this. And when we look at kind of the work that we do on the food side compared to the work that gets done on the cannabis um, industry, a lot of the testing is the same, you know, pesticides are the same, heavy metals are a concern micro concerns, you know, microbiological pathogens are a concern. We were just kind of oddly suited for this, and they really pushed us to start that. And so our very first cannabis lab we, we ended up starting um, called Dibel Bioscience was in Santa Cruz uh, in 2018. Uh, we've since have grown a little bit. We have a lab in Oregon, uh, one in Chicago, Illinois, and we have plans to open up a, a couple more. But, again, what really has drawn us into this is obviously there's a business side of it, sure, but we really like helping people and we like helping some of the smaller and mid-sized companies that have started trying to educate um, on the regulations but also trying to help them produce good, safe, quality products. And, unfortunately, like the Wild West, everyone talks about that. We definitely see it on the lab side. There are a lot of people starting labs who maybe are not the most ethical, sometimes a little shady. And I think one of the things that we we bring to the table is a level of professionalism, a level of stability, um, and sophistication in the industry. And I think that's really lacking um, in some of the states. And I think that's, you know, we've been in business almost 60 years. Um, so there's definitely things that we can bring to this industry to help help it. And, and it's maturing quickly, and it's going in good directions. Um, but I think some of what we can offer um, really has been helpful. Um, when you look at the food side, though, and, and to kind of compare and contrast, um, the food industry is a lot more stable. You know, we have clients, we have relationships, we have vendors that we've had for, you know, 10, 20, sometimes up to 50, 60 years. There's a lot of stability in that industry. The food industry is regulated, you know, they're regulated by USDA, FDA, but they don't have to submit results for every batch of product that they make. They don't have to, you know, give those C of A's to the government. 
you contrast that with where we see cannabis at right now, there's a, um, it's heavily regulated, almost, and a lot of people say too regulated, but at least at the lab level, every batch that we test, we have to submit results to the, the various states. And then that is consistent state after state, right? But conversely, the relationship side of it, we see a lot of lab jumping. People will jump ship. There's not a whole lot of loyalty, um, or there, unfortunately, it can't be. There are some very loyal people out there. I shouldn't say that. But there's, as a whole, what we see is in a much more regulated space where there's a lot more oversight, there's a lot less building of bridges and, and partnerships between labs and some of the, the clients that are out there. And it's just really, I, when you kind of take a step back and look at it that way, it just really struck me as, as very interesting, very, very novel, if you will. Um, I think one of the, the things that we really see and that, that is becoming the biggest single test that a lab will offer right now is potency. And there's just so much riding on that potency result from top down, you know, from the consumer level, from the retail level, from the growers, from the, um, you know, people making distillate or edibles, and then to the labs, there's just this huge pressure top down on potency levels. And I really think that that adds to some of the anger or some of the frustrations with labs. You know, people want higher results. I think also that can unfortunately put pressure on labs to maybe not be as ethical with their results. We do hear, you know, everyone's heard of, you know, stories. There have been, you know, labs been shut down for forging results. I mean, that's just a really ugly, unfortunate side of the industry. And I almost like when, when we think about this, when we talk about it as a, as a technical group in our company, instead of having like a numerical value on a package, you know, 28% THC, what if there were just ranges, right? You could have, you know, 25 to 30%, and then you could just be in that range. I, I would think that might limit or reduce some of the, the pressure that's on labs and producers to be on, on kind of like a whole num number level. And especially when you think about, especially flour, it's a biological system. You know, that, that THC, that chemical, is just not in the same concentration at every single bud, you know, leaf area of that plant. And so just inherent to one plant, you're going to get ranges. Correct. Right? Yes. So why don't we put that into the package? Yeah, I think that's a more precise way of approaching it. I would love to hear Joe's thoughts on that because this, is, this it pertains to the – medicinal efficacy and i think i'm also curious this is an ongoing topic in this in the space regarding the highest test result does not mean the best medicine we 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 we've had the the, the discussion around entourage effects the the research of ethan russo these ongoing conversations from from martin lee and project cbd and and fred gardner and all these elders that have put in the work and looked in and looked into the science here and joe as a as a long-term advocate for the medicinal side of the nonprofit sector, can you speak to that and your thoughts on this idea of, of ranges? I think it's actually an interesting idea. I think it's very promising. It could be a nice transition away from this overzealous appreciation and, and coveting of these high test results because the reality is of any test result, there is by default probably some sort of range inherent in that result, and we know that each lab has its own approach to calibrating their equipment and their own like model of of of, of demonstrating how potent that flower <laughs> is it's kind of a wild west well, system well you you just hit on a good point there is that there are <laughs> i mean unless it changed and i don't think it has but i don't think there is a standardized there's not a set of standards that all the labs are operating on no so, i don't think so that's true you know, yeah, you can you can take the same flower to ten different labs and you get ten different results. And then you know, like CT was saying, you know, there's different levels 
of cannabinoids at different parts of the plant. So true. And yeah, and then also you have margins of error. And one thing that I think about a lot when this topic comes up is, um, you know, the comparison with the alcohol industry. And it just seems, it, 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 can you imagine if everyone drinking alcohol would only be drinking Everclear? Yeah, no way. It wouldn't work. You it know, wouldn't it's work. Like, it, it's, yeah, and, and so I'm hoping we get to a point because, you know, there has been this sort of stress on, like, THC potency and that that's, you know, a lot of the, the stoners out there are really, you know, that's what they're going for. And a lot of the indoor, you know, hits those levels. But when you talk about, like, the enjoyment, the experience of a particular flower or a particular strain, you know, most people in a blind taste test will enjoy sun-grown flower more that has a more vibrant terpene profile and not, you know, the Frankenstein cannabis. And, and no, I, I'm not talking down to any indoor growers out there. You know, I love me some indoor as well. But um, that plant has never seen the sun. A lot of times it's never seen soil. And that's why I kind of say Frankenstein. It's like if you fed a human only intravenously and, you know, gave it like, you know, vitamin D from, from a light instead of from the sun. It's not the natural way that the plant, you know, is meant to, to grow. And so, yeah, it's, it's interesting with the testing. You know, it's like it, it, I, I'm hoping we get to a point where, you know, most people who consume alcohol consume beer. You know, most people who consume alcohol are not doing shots, you know, and so hopefully we'll get to the point. You know, Tim Blake brings this up as well. He's the you know, founder of the Emerald Cup. They're the oldest cannabis competition in California. And one of the things he says is that the, the flower that has always tested the highest has never won the cup. And the people who are judging at the cup, they're judging on the experience, on the flavor. You know, it's not just like how out of my head can I get. And I feel like that's when people focus on the THC potency, that's kind of the direction they're going in. You know, it's like yeah. you almost want more bang for the buck. And, yeah, so I, I'm hoping I'm starting to see more labs and, you know, really stoked to be working with Dybul. And I, I'm, I'm seeing more labs doing more of these, like, terpene profiles because I'm hopeful we get to a point, you know, we know certain strains help certain medical ailments. And, you know, we work with HIV and AIDS patients, and it's really interesting with the medical benefits of cannabis because when we ask them what they're using it for, they're each using it for something different because when you have HIV, it manifests symptoms like a whole bunch of different symptoms, you know, it's attacking your immune system. And so it, it shows up in all these different ways. So some people have wasting syndrome and they need something to stimulate their appetite. Some people have neuropathy. And so, you know, it's like nerve pain and they're all using it for different things. And the plant is working for all of it. And I'm excited to see in the future when we figure out, you know, different what different cannabinoids are doing for the endocannabinoid system that we all have in our body, like what the cannabinoids are doing to us health-wise, you know, pairing that up with the terpenes because terpenes also have medicinal value. So I'm, so I'm looking true. forward to a future. I don't know. I don't know if it's five or ten years, but instead of having like, you know, a skunk strain or a wedding cake or Girl Scout cookies, you know, there's a strain that's like cancer strain. And it's like that's the strain that you use because it has all the right cannabinoids doing the entourage effect at, at all the different levels that you kind of want them to be at. And on top of that, it also has the terpene profile that also helps cancer. And so we're, you know, I want to see, um, you know, these, these people doing genealogy and, and making new strains you know, working in that direction because we've, we've done this thing and a lot of people call it the race to the bottom and everybody's trying to get the strain with the highest THC. And when you have some of these larger operators 
and the consumer base is focused on that high THC, they're talking about, you know, monocropping just one thing because it's got the highest THC, and then we're going to lose a bunch of these really great medicinal strains because the, you know, the big corporations, they're, you know, they're kind of single-minded. They're like, oh, we just want the highest THC, and we want to make the most of that plant you know, we want it to be the biggest, and we're just going to monocrop this one strain, and we're going to be losing that medicinal aspect of this plant if if that's the focus. Yeah, well, that's and that's it's something that I think we're really uh, outspoken about on the show. I like to think of those rare phenotypes and chemotypes, like colors the chartreuses the unicorns in the crayola box that you don't see that especially in the every flavor beans in the harry potter world like these these weird unique flavors that the, the genome of the cannabis plant is so diverse it has so much potential who are we to try to zero in on on just the high I, I want to say something about prohibition real fast the reason why we have this race to the bottom in, in, in trying to select for the highest THC possible, that was an old era prohibition practice. The reality is a lot of the land race and old school cultivars from all over the world, the rare unicorn colors and the Crayola box of cannabis genome potential, they all had a mixed ratio. They all had these rare dynamic medicinal terpenoids flavonoids cannabinoids and we just need to get back to the roots of what this plant was for humans for thousands of years which was just like canine is man's best friend cannabis c-a-n-n the same start it's, it's the it's the flora and the fauna it's our best friend and just rekindle that connection of understanding where this where this plant belongs in our in our quiver of existence and and i think one thing is we just need to let go of that high thc thing and and hopefully support like ct's lab that are that are committed to ethics that are committed to serving and and being a part of a community that has this root deep heartfelt influence this motivation of compassion Compassion and, and service and, and the ethics of Prop 215, that is why we are here today. I love that story about our, our aunt in our family has lupus. We, we've, we've, we've worked with so many people here in Santa Cruz through the works of Al Corral and, and Wham, uh, serving the sick and, and the dying. And it, it continues to be a humbling yet inspiring uh, life practice of, of of this plant has brought us to this point of where we can talk on the radio AM and FM literally broadcast into the into the heavens about what we can do better and and that's one cool thing is you two are up to some really special things you're going to do a lot of positive work in the in the community I commend you for that work and I want to support that work because we all can do better, and this this industry, as it stands right now, could be better. CT, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, what, what, what do you, what, what do you think operators and, and brands and and farmers, uh, the range is a really good idea. Are there other ideas that we should maybe introduce into this conversation that could improve and enhance? From your perspective, from other spaces, right, the food space, a lot of our farmers are growing vegetables. They're growing produce. So it is relevant. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. <clears throat> so I think the range idea might be good, and I think it really also would have traction, you know, God willing that we get uh, federal legalization. Um, it would get traction with FDA um, because – you know, ultimately, I think that my my personal thoughts on this are that FDA has too much on their plate already, and they're not going to be able to take on uh, cannabis regulation. So I kind of feel like, well, the FDA is still rolling out a, a landmark 
um, new food um, system called FISMA, the Food Safety Modernization Act. It was signed by Obama in 2011, and it, it's still rolling out in, our, in the food industry. Wow. And they can't they, – I don't think they have enough funding even to handle that, right? Got so it. So then you, you throw in something huge like cannabis and, and how diverse it is and how um, different it is state by state, they're not going to have the bandwidth for that. So I, I personally feel like they're going to punt back to the states but, you know, the feds are probably going to get their cut. They're going to get a, a tax, you know, levy on, on everything. But I, I personally feel like they're just going to punt back to the states and let the states continue managing uh, the cannabis regulations that they've, they've already done, which is good. But on the FDA side, at least for, like, edibles or for, um, um, you know, something that they, they might have to at least help write some sort of, like, federal guidance on, there's already inherent in the food code that anything you put on a label, you're allowed a tolerance. And that kind of goes back to the range idea I, I, we were talking about. Yes. So, like, if you pick up a, a food label and it says uh, 10 grams of fat, do you, does that mean that every single candy bar, every single, you know, bag of chips has exactly 10 grams on it? Absolutely not. You're allowed a range. And and on the food side, you're allowed 20 percent. Wow! So yeah, it's huge. <laughs> the big range. But that also, yeah. And I think you guys were already talking about this. That you know, there's inherent differences in the plant itself. I think we all know that. There's also, you know, it was mentioned that um, there's also inherent differences in just the methodology and the equipment. There's all this error, right? That's built into all that testing, and so. In order to put a label claim on something, like 10 grams of, of fat, let's say, you're actually allowed anywhere between 8 and 12 and still be able to make that label claim. So you don't see ranges on nutritional labels, but behind that, the, the, you know, the regulations right behind that do allow for that. So I think it would be, I think it would be a really novel way to kind of disarm some of the, the pressure on THC levels and especially high levels. Um, and I really like the conversation you guys were having in regards to uh, terpenes and, and effects for those because I really think that's going to be the, the next big emerging field once um, kind of the business kind of stabilizes, people kind of stabilize, you know, we're, we're on more of a, a new normal. Uh, it's not so much Wild West. I, I think the, the new frontier will be looking at more of that entourage effect, more of the kind of beneficial effects and not just chasing a high. Amen. Amen. And Joe has been very articulate about the I, – I like how he said the, the cancer maybe cultivar. One thing I know from serving a lot of patients is it's amazing how the biochemistry comes into play and certain bodies really – you can have a certain product and i'm i'm 200 pounds six one but maybe my wife who's different right much much different and 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 then she may be all good with it and it floors me and vice versa i've seen this with so many patients and one thing to keep in mind is this 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 dialing in of the of the person and and their in their biochemistry and Joe can you speak to that a bit about this especially when we're looking at what I appreciate about both of you on this call is maybe there is an opportunity to scale some of this conversation on a federal beyond California because I, I agree I think we should see when a lot of people think about the cannabis industry they don't think about the nonprofit sector they don't think about compassion but they should because that's where this all began this all began with the roots of Brownie Mary, Dennis Perone, a lot of the works here locally. I feel very honored and, and, and based in the works of, of the Wham Gardens and the Mike Corral and Val Corral and there's this and Jack Herrer and there's this legacy that we're continuing here. And a lot of that service came to serve patients that were victims of HIV and AIDS, and still to this day, there are still communities across the nation that are suffering from this 
ongoing struggle and we we are still looking at the change too around other you know other other policies and i think one thing to think about what we could do for the future is to help articulate and share experience and hopefully provide insight into the implementation of new things across the whole nation and i would love to hear your thoughts about how do we elevate the conversation around the entourage effects around these other medicinal approaches to maybe a mixed cannabinoid ratio into a more focus upon the entourage effects of the terpenoids and the flavonoids and maybe even some of those older land race varietals so that we can move beyond just the hype cookie strains and get back to the roots of some of these unique cultivars from the different regions of the planet because we find specifically my example that I will cite in this topic in this segue South Africa has the ability to produce a lot of THCV whether it be Durban or or different varietals from these areas of Africa we find that THCV cannabinoid can be rich in those varietals and and consequently we find in areas of uh, you know the Hindu Kush region they produce different cultivars that are really good for hash extraction and and the resin heads have evolved and there's something here that's to speak about the international herb love to hear your thoughts Joe yeah well um geez I mean that was a mouthful <laughs> I'm like yeah it's open things? open topic <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, I like to keep it open. No, dude, it's totally all good. It's totally all good. Um, well, one of the things that I kind of was thinking about, you know, you were talking about, you know, how do we change this public perception? And I feel like this also ties into what we're dealing with, because you also mentioned about compassion in the nonprofit sector. And, you know, the things we're talking about, I think the general public is unaware of. So one of our big things with 2022 is, you know, creating more visibility for the nonprofit sector, educating people about this vibrant root of recreational cannabis. Because we got recreational cannabis due to medical cannabis, and we got medical cannabis due to compassionate cannabis, you know, Brownie, Mary, and Dennis Crone giving away free medical cannabis in the 80s to terminally ill patients, you know, AIDS patients at San Francisco General Hospital. And so I feel like this is kind of similar to, you know, educating people about the entourage effect. The only issue, the difference is, is that people just don't really know about the nonprofit sector. And with the race for THC, that has been kind of publicized through, you know, things like high times where that's, it's, it's been this current of, of thought in your average everyday stoner. And so I think it's really about educating the public. And so like having, creating more visibility for, you know, legacy farmers that have these special growing techniques and they're getting, like, incredibly high terpene profiles. And, you know, they're smelling really good. You know, another issue that I think we're up against is some of the the holdover from the traditional market. You know, like, I'm up in the Emerald Triangle, and up here for years, everybody was about the gas. Yes. You know, the diesel, the OG Kush. Yes. Why were they... Why were they all about the gas? It's because everything was going to the East Coast. Sure. And, and it slaps. On the East Coast, yeah, well, the people on the East Coast, they were like, we know our customers are going to want the gas. It's going to hit the hardest. And so, you know, there's, there's these certain things that we, it's kind of become a habit in the industry. And how do we break out of that? And I, I definitely think it's education. You know, I think it's about, you know, labs like Dybul, you know, starting to do more terpene profiles, like brands starting to put more terpene profiles on their labeling and like educating people. And there's, you know, there's different programs now where, you know, it's kind of like can of sewers, you know. So it's like the wine industry has these people 
who will drink some wine and they'll tell you all the different flavors. And it's similar with the chocolate industry and the coffee industry. There's like different hints and different notes and, you know, the terroir, where it was grown, elevation, um, all these different things blend into the flavor and marijuana cannabis is one of these products that is like wine and chocolate and coffee. It has a, an incredible depth to the flavor and the different variations. And I'd like to see more of that happen. You know, you've seen this thing in coffee culture where now there's like all the single origin coffee. You go to the fancy coffee shop. They tell you all the little notes that come with it. Yes. You know? and, <laughs> yes. And nobody's like, Nobody's like, give me the coffee with the most caffeine. (laughs) It's laughable. Yeah, so I think think there's a lot we can learn from other industries where, you know, we've just had this narrative in cannabis. And it's about educating the public because they, I don't think the average person knows what they're missing. Amen. And it's not so much that, like, what's been happening is bad. It's just what was happening. But yes. what we could do in the future could be, like, so incredible. Like, you go, like, and I like that. I started seeing this in some of the, like, vape companies. Like, they weren't really putting the percentage as much on their product. And they were selling the product depending on the effect. And so they had, they didn't even have strain names. They had, like, varieties. And they're like, this one's good for sleep. This one's good for work. You know, they even had some that yeah. they're like, this is this is good for the bedroom with your partner. Yeah, you know, no, I know. Different, different ways of describing it. And, and I get a lot of, of props to those brands because it kind of went out on a limb to do something different. And it's that's the kind of stuff that, that we need to see. Like the consumer needs to be included in this whole conversation and, and be given options. And, you know, creating these can of sewers that are now going around, like, educating people. Or, you know, they're doing a, a, a something at the dispensary where people are coming in and they're, like, showing them flour or showing them products and, like, having them not necessarily sample, like, smoke it, but, like, smell it. You know, they do that in coffee shops. They're, like, smell this, and then the, the expert is, Cuppings. like, yes, you yes. notice. Yes. Yeah, they're, they're, like, do you notice this little note in it? Or what about this? And so they're like trying to help the average consumer to become more of a of a connoisseur when it comes to coffee or those things, or a connoisseur when it comes to cannabis. Because people want to talk about weed, and honestly, it's kind of like a boring conversation if you're only talking about how much THC you have. You know, it is. <laughs> no, you're you're right on, man. Well, and specifically serving the public on the floor in the retail setting it is a boring conversation i haven't done it in years but i've built i've built local businesses and, and I, it, it, it is tiresome well, what kept me inspired were the medical patients were the people that had those testimonies be that be it anecdotal but what we've talked about this evening with CT and Joe is is all anecdotal, and and it does resonate, and it does come from the heart and goes to the heart. And CT, when we're thinking about branching out and looking at other jurisdictions, you currently are operating in other spaces. Can you shed light and in, in your professional opinion, maybe the best approach or just your thoughts on? how to elevate uh, a conversation and that cross-pollination of ideas in like industries but but very different regulatory systems like and for specific, you know for example obviously cannabis and in food and, and your relationship in the lab setting but also just as an observer of of operator behaviors in both spaces yeah thanks um <clears throat> I think that as far as how do you how do you elevate this up? How do you take the next step up and really start moving forward with some of these programs or some of these ideas that we think might have traction? A lot of it could be grassroots, a lot of ag- advocacy groups, a lot of you know cannabis focused um, uh, trade organizations. They always can 
kind of get in front of some of the regulators. But also, I know that when FDA was rolling out FSMA, before they did that, they actually um, contacted some of the larger companies in the U.S. and actually said, all right, how can we work together on this? Like, we have this big mandate. We're supposed to change. You know, people don't want to eat a eat a almond and get sick. They don't want to eat ice cream and potentially die. Yeah. So how can we work together to, uh, you know, on a shared goal? You know, public yes. safety, public health is important. Common ground. And, you know, before this, though, FDA was just viewed as this punitive inspection body. They didn't trust them. They didn't like them. You know, everyone was wary of them. And I feel like that's currently where a lot of the cannabis companies are in regards to state um, regulators. You know, fearful, you know, kind of this tenuous, you know, relationship, but really just not trusting. And I feel like on the regulator side, if we can kind of borrow some of that let's work together mentality, um, that would really help also establish programs that we can all live with, that we can all agree work, and that we all share a common goal, which is product safety. You know, people, especially on the um, compassionate cannabis side, you know, I've seen stories, I've seen, um, you know, um, issues with, like, pesticides or heavy metals. If you have cancer, man, if you have HIV and you're vaping and you're just trying to feel better, and you get pesticides or heavy metals in your system, you're going to get sicker. And there are people yeah. that could potentially die from that. So I think that just if you want to smoke and just enjoy it, or if you're doing it for medicinal reasons, I think everyone can get behind the fact that we want this product to be safe. And we 100%. want it to, to do what, what, you know, whatever effect we want it to do. You know, we, we've touched on terpenes um, and having um, – Terps labeled, you know, and, and some of the labeling that can occur that could give people, you know, you want some sleepy time weed, here you go. You want something else. If the Terps were labeled, that would be great too. But it has to be ethical and it has to be done, I think, on many levels. And it's not just going to be one approach that will really move some of this forward. But I think the the FDA coined a phrase um, during their rollout of FSMA that said, educate as we regulate. And I think that was a really smart phrase, and it really nice. helped kind of encapsulate what they were trying to do. It also showed that they were trying to build bridges. And I feel like what's missing, like in the California market and in other state markets, is just this very, very aggressive, punitive approach to the regulations. And I think that easing off on that, backing off on that, and trying to establish bridges more would really help the industry in all states. Thank you for that. Educate as we regulate. In some ways, the regulators, too, could could use an education, and it goes both ways. But I think, wow, what a refreshing perspective, because there's a lot to be done here, and there's a lot of improvements to be made, especially... California is such a special place, and we have such an, a special opportunity to lead the way in 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 agriculture and cannabis and beyond. and And hopefully, we can continue this conversation. It's been it's been very cathartic. I really appreciate you both sharing this time with me. and And, and, and Joe Sweetleaf, can can you speak to? Our, our our people and how they can uh, connect with you and, and anything to look out for in this this ongoing endeavor of the nonprofit sector and, and specific calls to action not specific calls to action but but you know what I mean how how can our audience continue yeah. to, to to engage and support and and we are very much uh, Santa Cruz is a very special community, and we, we love what you're doing and want to continue to be a part of it. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, you know, there's all the social medias. Um, you know, you can follow me, Sweetleaf Joe, on Instagram, Twitter. Um, I got the link tree, Sweetleaf Joe, that's got a bunch of links on it. Um, 
you know, we've been doing really good with flower donations and then creating partnerships with people all up and down the supply chain, like Dybul. Dybul's doing free lab testing for us. Super appreciate that. Um, the biggest hurdle that we have for a call to action is funding. So we're getting, you know, free cannabis. Like I mentioned, Dybul's doing free testing and a lot of free testing, and that's, that's not cheap. And testing is definitely a major issue. It's a major financial hurdle. So having help with that is super, but, you know, we work with, like, Highway 1 distribution in Santa Cruz. Dave King, he is a saint, and we got over $2 million of free cannabis to patients last year, and Dave was the one doing those deliveries, and he paid for almost all of his own gas to drive that around. And so we need help with funding to really help the supply chain. So, you know, all these other brands, we have to do the exact same thing. When we get a bulk flower donation, we have to get it tested. We have to move it from the farm to the distribution. You know, we have to get it packaged up. We have to pay for packaging, pay for labeling. So, we totally need financial support. If people want to donate monthly, we have a little monthly thing you could click on our PayPal. You can find our donation link on our website, which is sweetleafcollective.org. And we also like to quantify the impact for our donors. Every dollar raised helps a patient access one gram of free medical cannabis. And that's super important to think about. You know, a $7 donation means that a patient gets a quarter ounce. Another way people can support is we sell lighters and rolling papers at select dispensaries. Um, there's one dispensary in Santa Cruz, and now I'm kicking myself in the butt because I don't have their name in front of me. Um, but there's, you know, Really, the financial support, spreading the word, we really need to create more visibility for the nonprofit sector of cannabis. So, you know, really want to thank you for having me on tonight because this is helping that mission. And, yeah, follow us, repost our stuff, retweet our stuff, you know, Sweetly Collective on uh, Facebook pages. Uh, I'm Joe Sweetleaf on Facebook. My email is sweetleafjoe at gmail.com. If, you know, that's the only thing you, you remember, you don't have a pen, you just got one and you're writing it down right now, sweetleafjoe at gmail. And, yeah, we just want to get more people involved. We want to get more access happening. We got over $2 million worth of cannabis, you know, help patients access over $2 million worth of cannabis last year. And we have the lofty goal we would love to see patients be able to access $10 million worth of free cannabis in 2022. And the only way we're going to do that is if we get the support of the community and get funding. And, you know, it's, it's, it's an issue with cannabis nonprofits. So we are a nonprofit. We just filed for our paperwork. We've been fiscally sponsored for a while under another nonprofit. We're going to be our own nonprofit. I'm sorry, Joe. We're going to get cut off. I, I appreciate both of you, and I want to say thank you to CT as well, and, and, and this was a wonderful conversation. I appreciate you both joining us on the Cannabis Connection, and stay up, Santa Cruz. Have a wonderful week.